0: For our first message this morning, we're going to look at church history. And um, we are, for those who have been keeping track, dealing with today the 8th century, as you see on the board there. And this is covering the years 1701 to the year 800. 1701 to the year 800. Before we begin, though, let us open up our Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. We're going to read verses 18 to 20. Matthew 28. The Word of the Lord says, Jesus came and He spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto Me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Wow, what a place to start when we look at any portion of church history. Um, raise your hand if you have one of the color maps that we have. Okay, so some of you guys you'll have to share because we only had like 10 or 12. And there's an extra one here. If anybody wants to grab this one up here, we have an extra one. Um, so, here's Jesus, right? Telling His disciples before he ascends back up to glory to take the things that I have taught you in the full revelation of all of the Old Testament covenant promises, fulfilling them, living them, showing you their true fulfilled meanings, take this Gospel, this new chapter, this new epic chapter of God's dealing with mankind and all the nations, and go into all the nations. Take these things and go teach the nations. Now, you know, if we're not careful, sometimes we can read the Bible, like it's just these guys in this little remote desert place known as Jerusalem is somewhere in the Middle East. Right? I mean you can kind of just Get uh, down in the trenches of the narrative and you're kind of putting yourself there. Pastor Shea at the chapel just said, you know, whenever you're reading the Bible, try to act like you're in the audience. Try to act like you're there and imagining what's being said and what's around, the smells, the people, all that. You know, just to help you get a better sense of the text and what's occurring in real actual history. And sometimes we can do that, right? So I give this map to us today because think about it for a moment. This charge, this great commission as it's known that was given unto this very small band of people when compared to all human civilization is, I'm holding the map up now, you see, in a little bitty spot right about in here, right? Just right about in here. But, but look at the world. I mean, look at this Entire globe, and and, and me and a brother were talking about it before church. Where we find ourselves now is about three thousand years, approximately, removed from the fall of the Tower of Babel, right, brother? And and the population of these people being dispersed from Babel and taken with them all of these airs of thinking of the Babylonian uh, culture and religion and so forth and so on or not Babylonian, but, but, but at the time, their, their pagan culture. They take that all throughout the world, and they began for 3,000 years leading up here to the 8th century, begin to continue to worship false gods, continue to found and establish their kingdoms and their cultures on these false idols and these false gods. And so in other words, what we're we doing with this map here of where we're finding the church in history is looking and seeing that in the 8th century for, for a very long time, but just for my illustration of the Tower of Babel for 3,000 years at least, it is a very dark place. Amen? It's, it's dark. I mean, look over here. You've got um, Buddhism and Hinduism already taking great foot and taken great deep roots in this part of the region. Uh, you have the different expressions of Islam not entirely unified yet here in the Arab empire. And now we're in the uh, you know the age in which we live and we can look at this map and there's somewhat of connection to it. Like we look at that and we go oh yeah that region right there that is where the Middle East and Arabs live. You see, these empires now are, we're, we're starting to see in the 8th century something that we can kind of relate to in our own uh, day and age. Uh, I was informed by one of the brothers um, in connection with today, uh, today's age that down here in Africa, there was uh, a language here. What was it, brother? There was two of them. Hausa and Yoruba. Yeah, you see that? Yoruba and Hausa. He said those two languages still exist today. There's people that live there that are still descendants of these people. So this is the landscape where we come to Christ's elect special bride in church who's been given this commission. And for now, a great while, they have had a history of their own, right? In this commission, in taking it out. We've already seen how the church has dealt with false sons within her pale coming in and uh, back in uh, the century the 4th century in 325 they had to have the first ecumenical council where a lot of the bishops from even down here in the region of africa they had to come up here to constantinople and they wanted to have in nicaea rather and wanted to have a council and get the divinity of jesus hashed out right Well, today in the year 800, there's going to be some more things that are going to be impacting the church that we're going to look at. And once again, all of the leaders in the church are called together back to another council in Nicaea to meet and to hash out something. But before we get into controversy within the Christian church, before we get into the sons of God coming together in the church and saying, what does the word of God say about certain matters that are beginning to be propagated amongst us? Christian history is never to be presented as this, look, we're perfect people. We don't have any problems. We're squeaky clean. No, that's not the case. Because why? There are two main institutions that Satan has always been very adamant about attacking, and that is the church and the family. And we're going to see that today. Uh, Not so much the family, but, but definitely the church. But in the midst of all of this darkness, let's draw emphasis now to brethren in the church who were taking the gospel out to these dark regions. They were taking the gospel into these places. Um, You know, young people with us today, I think that some of the most interesting studies is around this time. I was telling one brother before church that right here you see All of these kingdoms operating and warring and trying to gain ground and conquer one another. And um, it's real history. This is what God's doing. He's navigating. He's using these different kingdoms, you know what I mean, against one another. Open up doors for uh, gospel opportunity. Just to give you an idea of kind of what's circling around and what's going on in the 8th century with all these different kingdoms. Here are some things that were pivotal surrounding the Christian church going on around them. Because the church never lives in a vacuum, you guys. Uh, there's a world around us that's going on according to God's decreative plan. And 705, Justinian II. You would remember Justinian, the emperor of Rome, um, the first time who was a valiant defender of the Christian faith uh, in his understanding of the Christian faith. Uh, he wanted to use money to build great, uh, edifices and things like this uh, to denote the power of christianity well justinian II is forced to give up the title caesar of byzantinum to a bulgarian emperor at this time the byzantine empire begins to pay annual tributes to bulgaria so we're talking about the byzantine empire we're talking about over here the eastern side of the roman empire down here where it says Greek, Greek, their native language was Greek. So there's a major shift there in their culture, right? Uh, no longer is everything going to be uh, like Kansas anymore, right? And the Byzantine Empire. There's serious national concerns to take place. The year 1712 to 740, the Caliphate, they campaign in India, uh, and this is in the 8th century the arabs seeking to further expand their influence in the region the 7th century as we know when we were in that class there was a great expansion of the arabs all around the area that you see on the map they were pressing out they were conquering they were pushing out and that fizzles out in the 8th century Uh, god you could say uses the byzantine empire to put a halt to them He uses some other empires to to, to put a stop to their expansion. And so in the 8th century, what we see on the map is the Arabs are are kind of isolated where they're at now. But they're still warring against other kingdoms. 1717 to 1718, there was the siege of Constantinople. Uh, The Bulgarians and the Byzantines decisively defeat the invading Arabs, as I just mentioned, thus halting the Arab advance toward Europe. And so in God's providence... The Arabs are stopped with their Muslim swords of of expanding Islam into that area. And uh, for a season, leading up to the Great Reformation, here in another 700 years or so, what happens? Uh, Christianity, as you could say, protected from this, right? Again, God using nations, God using these even pagans to bring about what he wants to accomplish. 726, Byzantine Emperor Leo III destroys the icon of christ that's going to be very important for us and all of that it makes sense in a moment of why this byzantine emperor did this he destroys an icon made of jesus that was hung above the shalik gate this must have been i didn't do a lot of research on this but it's a a prominent you know uh, place in in their culture in the capital city of constantinople And this began the first phase of this controversy that we're going to be looking at today. So there's a lot of ups and downs. There's a lot of turmoils. There's a lot of wars. Uh, We could go on. There's a whole list of things that are are going on in this century. You may find this interesting. Uh, There's a lot of inventions and discoveries that are taking place here. Before we get into these missionaries going out into these cultures, these missionaries going out into these Disturbed waters of darkness and taking the gospel of Jesus there in these places. We have the invention of the heavy plow, uh, really, that's beginning to come onto the scene in human cultures and being used. Uh, according to my sources here, we have the invention of the horse collar, uh, of course, up in northern Europe to be used for agricultural purposes. In the mid-eighth 8th century, paper making is introduced from china over to the arabs you wonder who introduced that right i mean if you got people that are wanting to destroy your culture and take you out why would you give them something like that but paper is is beginning to be shared amongst cultures iron horseshoes came into common use around 770 so later in this century um Levi and Nolan and some of the boys yesterday were using a metal detector. That's where the, the horseshoe was used around this time. The Chinese Buddhist monk Buddhism this this dark false understanding of uh, mankind, the creator, the world around it has been around for around eighteen hundred years now. Um, it's questionable before the ministry of Jesus exactly when Buddhism was. A lot of people believe it's four or five hundred years, but no doubt when we come to the eighth century. Um, it is held to by quite a few people and it's been around for about a thousand years. And so again, I'm just amplifying these things so we're getting the picture of the parallels that we have today with the same Great Commission, the same dark cultures, the same troubled waters. We see that this isn't anything new for the Christian church, right? And so we see the promise of God using His church being with his church, giving them all power to go do and accomplish what he's asked them to do. It seems this week the message has been communicated to me more louder than ever that we have to look away from ourselves in the midst of afflictions, trials. That's the context in which i believe the spirit's been really through the witnesses of other brothers and in his word been communicating to me this that we have to continue more and more to look away from ourselves unto our great god and maker and dear christian friends if there is ever a time where we need to stop looking at our abilities and you know the things that we can accomplish And look unto God and plead with him as we opened up our our, our gathering yesterday And, and we pleaded did we not brothers and sisters oh God you know the nation in which we live you know the times in which you have called us to be your people but oh God we plead with you have mercy on us help us because we cannot do this without your strength right and this is the same situation these early Christians, brothers and sisters, find themselves in. They found themselves in the same situation. So we have this wonderful heritage to look back to. We got this wonderful history to look to at how the strength of God equipped these men that we're about to look at. And they went into these places. I got to mention it because it's here in my notes. The first European harp is de- it was uh, designed by the Pixhavir tribe in Scotland. And so all you musicians will like that. Well, who's going to go out in these troubled waters? Upon whose strength that we read in Matthew are the sons of God going to take the light of gospel truth into such hostile areas? Well, let's look on the board together and we see two that are noteworthy. Notes here. We have two that are noteworthy. And the first is Boniface. Boniface. He was uh, largely remembered as the apostle. And when we say apostle, of course, brethren, we, need, we mean a lowercase a. He was a witness. He was, uh, the, in a sense, the evangelist that we saw in the New Testament. I put that in brackets, of course. But he was the evangelist, the apostle, to the Germanic tribes. So where's that at, kids? Where's where, where this at? So Bonavus, he's working largely up here in what is modern day Europe. He comes up here in these Germanic tribes in the 8th century, which has largely the expansion of the people you know as the Vikings. Uh, they began their quests last lesson in church history in the 7th century, but by the 8th century, the Vikings have made great inroads in these Germanic tribes. And you remember their unique pagan customs of how they dressed, how they marked their bodies, so forth and so on. And here goes Boniface. He's going to go these people who are worshiping creation, making odd sacrifices, so forth and so on. All figments of an imagination of their own darkened heart and trying to understand and relate to the world that's around them. And here comes Boniface. (laughs) This first arrow of light into that arrow to bring the truth, just like Paul did on Mars Hill. Amen? And Boniface goes there, and he begins to share with them... um, You know, things that no doubt, because we know Romans chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 3, their conscience had already perhaps been speaking to them about, and that was when they murder, it was wrong. When they would commit adultery, it was wrong. Even though it was largely accepted in these Germanic tribes, even though it was largely propagated, there were still some that knew creating the image of God that that was wrong. And so what's Bonavus do? He comes with the gospel light and he begins to give them what? The information that children of light carry, the truth of the world, the truth of the creator, the truth of why your conscience is screaming at you that these things you know are wrong. And there was great conversions, great conversions amongst these Viking kings of these tribes and and there was a huge by satan going back to what i was saying satan's main quest is to destroy the church to fight back against the church there were large campaigns to keep the gospel out these invaders these christian invaders coming into our tribes and trying to change us to their gods we have you know they believe they had the one true god and over the centuries what do we have god through the gospel not by swords That was a mistake that was made before in church history. God, through the gospel, through the witness and testimony of faithful men and women, began to convert pagan cultures unto the glory of his son, Jesus Christ. That's what happened amongst the Germanic tribes. And then we lead up to where God blesses the nations most mightily in the time of the Reformation, through this groundwork of Boniface. So... We look at ourselves, and we look at the culture we're surrounding. Many similarities, brothers and sisters, uh, with these Germanic tribes. People marking their bodies all up, don't really know why. They call it art, that's what they call them. They had a lot more religious context to it then. Uh, and, and, and it's hard to divorce that from some sort of uh, religious connotation. That is the root of what modern-day tattooism is. Uh, these germanic tribes had all kinds of piercings i mean guys i'm just trying to paint a picture for you that there are parallels to boniface time in our times amen i see the brother up here smirk he's like yeah because you know we're working out in the world around all these guys aren't we and we see this and we understand that the times are just so similar but as we always say in this church we don't have to fear these things we have to be discerning we'll get into that in our message today we have to be cautious we have to be informed and be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. And in so much as that we're consistent and we're faithful in doing that and not tap, marking up, adapting their garb, their mannerisms, their customs. Yeah, you've got to speak their language. Amen. I mean, William Carey, one of the first, not the first, we make that mistake a lot of times. We talk about missions. He was not the first. Uh, but, but, but he did set a great example of you have to learn their language. Okay, we all agree that. But the other stuff is demonstrating that I believe that the gospel is not powerful enough, and I have to use it as a crutch in, in, in order to help the gospel convert these people, right? No, not Boniface. He goes there as the apostle to these Germanic tribes with simply one thing his love and devotion for Christ strengthened and fueled by the Holy Spirit given to him by sovereign God and the sword of the gospel. That's what he was equipped with. Well, let's move on here. Um, How can I move on without mentioning that he was eventually martyred? Boniface was martyred for Jesus in the year 754. And so he sowed the seeds of the gospel with his own blood and this is the cost of following Jesus the very first martyr in the Bible Stephen Uh, he was given grace uh, unmeasurable grace to be able to actually be stoned to death by people and having that other world heavenly word understanding of his reality Uh, brother we were talking about that just before church weren't we how that uh Brother Scott was talking about if he could sit down with any Christian. Uh, we can't include Jesus in this discussion. Uh, you know, he's the, he's the founder of Christianity. But anyone after Jesus, who could you sit down and talk with? And uh, Scott said, you know, I'd want to talk to Job. And, of course, that parallels greatly with what Scott's going through, isn't it? He wants to talk with Job because Job, through his affliction and suffering, would have been brought so near to an understanding, of a true sense of what the faith is all about. He would not get lost in all the little hayfields and weeds of discussion that oftentimes we can and that are necessary. We're going to look at one in a moment. But he would have just been able to share very plainly and clearly the path and the road of following the Savior. You know? Well, Boniface definitely would have been someone that would have been helpful to sit and talk about his great work he did for Christ amongst the Germanic cultures. well, Let's look at another uh, great missionary here that's worthy of what for the work that he accomplished in Jesus' name. And it is Olapon. Olapon is another example from the 8th century, uh, pronounced Alopon. There was, how many of you, I, ne- I never knew about this. I had to look at this a little bit. It's called the Sigin Thu Stone. It's in the Chinese territory. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of that. Anybody ever heard of that? Okay, yeah, it's uh, uh, S I G A N, the Sigan Fu Stone. It was discovered in northwest China, look at your map there, in the early part of this century that we're in. And it was discovered by uh, Catholic missionaries. At this point, still, you know, when we say Catholic missionaries, beloved, remember that we're in the year 800. And and while they're already, we've been recognizing this in, in the church history classes. While there are coming out of Rome, Constantinople, the Byzantine Empire, while there are a lot of traditions beginning to develop, the concrete catechism as the Roman Catholic Church holds to today is still not fully developed. Uh, It's in embryo form. It's definitely in um, adolescence being developed. We're going to see some of it today in the icon controversy. And so when I say Roman Catholic missionaries, uh, I'm talking about those coming from Rome, that are carrying a banner with a cross on it, or the you know the sign of Caesar's cross, coming there. They discovered this, and it recorded the advent of Christianity or the beginning of Christianity in China, 150 years prior to the time that the uh, the, the stone was inscribed with. So in 7080, they find this stone, and it is basically a witness. To the planting of the gospel for the first time in this region 150 years prior. So, 70 AD minus 150 years, this is when we believe that largely Christianity began to be planted and a gospel witness began to be known amongst the Chinese region. It recounted on this stone uh, the work of this missionary, upon He was an Assyrian missionary. Who had come from Syria over to China to preach the gospel. So we look again at our maps. And then we have a Christian brother who's down here, right? Somewhere in this region. Who someone from up here at one time had to get down in here with the gospel and bring the gospel to him in Syria. And then he's going to go, I'm imagining by boat, but it could have been by land. He's over here now with the Gospel. Look at that quest. Look at the, the, how far he went with only one call to go share the light of Jesus with these people that are trapped in the bondage of their mythologies and their dark practices. Praise be to God that he raised up and still is raising up uh, such men and women. By the 8th century, Chinese emperors... Now, remember, the 8th century, according to the stone, the gospel had had been amongst them for upwards to 150 years. And they automatically saw it as a threat. And so in the 8th century, the emperors were persecuting the Christians and extinguishing the flame of the gospel as quickly as they could to the missionaries astonishment who discovered the stone 1,000 years later learned what people in the seventh and eighth centuries had been willing to do and to sacrifice for the name of Jesus Christ in China. Now, if you would allow me for the sake of illustration to take, you know, uh, distinctives, that are in Protestantism, set them aside. People largely agree that in China, there's more genuine Holy Spirit raw activity taking place there than there is here in America, where there's a Bible on every corner and a church on every corner. Think about that. So here we are, you know, in the 8th century, the emperor... We've got to crush this gospel. We've got to annihilate this gospel. But still, they cannot stamp out the ambers, the coals. Nay, nay, yesterday we were cooking out on the grill, and that charcoal grill, why did I tell you? I said, the best way to cook on the grill is with the charcoal, right? And when those charcoals burn down, they get kind of quiet, but they're still hot. And so these Chinese emperors thought in their own wisdom as kings and rulers we could use the sword. We can use our armies. We can use mighty men's lily to to crush out the Gospel and to remove all of these Christians out of our land. But even though they may have martyred many of thousands of Christians, the Gospel, God's church, is like that. It's like those little ambers, those little coals that won't continually go out. And there's going to be a remnant, Brother Scott, in these dark, pagan cultures they're going to hold close and cling close to the hope and the promise mentioned in Matthew 28 that God's with them and he gives them power. He does give them power, brother, doesn't he? He does give them power to not fear the sword of man. I heard uh, through Kevin Swanson's uh, radio uh, program this week. Um, if, if you guys don't listen to that, listen to that. You know, of course, you know, you got to listen with, with it, of course, with everything in media with a little bit of discernment. But brothers and sisters, he's giving you what's going on around the world with those trying to quench the embers of the gospel. And in India last week, the Hindus came into a pastor's home, I believe it was, and having swords and spears and things like this, but one of them had a gun. And they threatened him to renounce the faith. The pastor wouldn't renounce the faith. And the Hindu uh, mercenary pulled the trigger, but the gun didn't fire. The gun didn't work. And then... Uh, you know, they're, they're ranting and raving and everything, trying to intimidate him. And they get the gun. They're, they're working on the gun. And they killed his father who's there with him in his little home church. Point blank. They shot his father in an attempt to demonstrate to him, you know, this is going to happen to you. And the gun didn't work on him. Beloved, go read this. This is true. This is happening in your age. This is happening in your time. That Jesus' promise in Matthew twenty eight, eight through through twenty, is actually being accomplished. He is with his church, his real true church, who's being persecuted in all of these dark regions. And this man's further beaten, and then the news report said they took him to the hospital, the state government hospital. They wouldn't help him. They said because quote unquote COVID reasons. And but guess what? God's angel, if you allow me that figure of speech, sent to him a private hospital and usher to him and he got fully you know taken care of he's being treated and he's recovering and he said basically to the news God has given me a message God has given me a message and I'm not going to change that message. What an example for us brother amen. We may not have people busting in here but believe me they're using a lot of other tactics and means to try to silence me and you at work in our schools, the public schools, get your kids out of public schools. I know I'm, I'm a <laughs> preacher of the choir here, but get your kids out of public school. I know it's not easy, and you've got to come up with you know, inventive ways to make this happen. But if you need some help, contact this church. Amen. We'll, we'll jump in and help you roll up the sleeves. But the point is is that they're coming after us as well, beloved. And we have to look back to this heritage we have of of, uh, uh, of of Boniface and be encouraged that God will be with us when we're put to the task like that, and we're put to the test. May we be bold as lions in the centuries to come as his church. Okay, well, while it is wonderful to reflect on the good things, and perhaps I should have did this last, right? Ended on that note. We, uh, we do have controversies that help inform us as God's church. Now, think about this. I don't have a lot of time, and this is real easily taught. Um, think about this. Church history and God's providence... He doesn't tuck it away and store it away from us so that we can have this false idea about our heritage. No. Some religious societies do that. Some do it like top secret. I mean, you know, you can't just go over to any old mosque in Arabia and start digging around as an archaeologist and discover things to try to validate, right, your history. No, 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 no. you're not digging over here. We have our narrative, we're going to stick to our narrative, right, and everybody's just going to believe narrative. Christians, we're not scared of the the archaeologists' spade. Let them turn over what they want to turn over because this is going to further validate the truth and the narrative that the Scriptures proclaim, right? Well, we come to that, we say that, and we come to this controversy because the Word of God has the answers for all controversy. And in the 8th century, there was a major controversy that erupted within the Christian community, and it was, as you see on the board, the iconoclastic controversy. Or that is, the use of images for the worship and the instruction and discipleship of the Christian church. Now, fundamentally at the very root of this problem was the shifting of the nations that we were just talking about. Okay? You had... Let me get my map back out here. You had in the Roman Empire, over here toward the west, largely a civilization a society whose culture... Uh, whose uh, really identity that, remember, are coming into the church founded upon a language known as Latin. Now, eastward over here, largely, same thing, culture, uh, self-identity, things like that coming in. These are people who are coming out of these cultures into the church. Their language was Greek. With the further disintegration of the Roman Empire that divide continued to grow because now the Roman Empire is not as unified, right? Brother, you were talking about last night, we were talking about governments, and uh, we were talking about the uniqueness of the U.S. president, and it works in America. You were, uh, I thought, convincingly arguing, but it really kind of wouldn't work in other places. And it works in America because of our culture here and our understanding of our heritage and our self-identity. Well, as the Roman Empire begins to disintegrate, Uh, with all these other kingdoms kind of putting pressure on it and coming from the outside, uh, this divide between the two parts of the culture, you could say the east side and the west side. See, this goes all back to old street days. You always have all had the east side and the west side, right? So this divide kind of develops, and the church kind of develops differently too in a way, which it ought not, because they all had the same Bible, right? But as people from that particular Eastern culture are coming in, for whatever reason, they wanted to begin to use and to propagate the use of what's called icons. Now, how many of you have had to do a school project or uh, in, in our adults' cases, you maybe have had moms had to do like some kind of homeschool project, and you've got to find a piece of clip art on the internet right so you just try to go scramble and find a piece of clip art well clip art is just like this really basic concept of something right it's not a michelangelo picture right that's how these icons were that the eastern church wanted to begin to use a lot of the bishops and the pastors in the eastern church wanted to begin to use within the church they were iconic clip art clip artish type of depictions Of various things that deal with the Christian faith. They would paint icons, little clip art pieces of wood. They were generally flat surfaces of the Trinity. They would paint a little man for the Father and a little man for the Son and and a man for the Holy Spirit, and this is representing the Trinity. They would paint iconic little clip art images of Jesus by himself. Um, You could just, the list goes on, Mary the mother of Jesus. There's, there's ancient icons of Mary. There's ancient icon pictures of the apostles. The reasoning for this was that largely the argument went like this. Jesus presented himself in human material form to help us better understand the Father, to help us to better understand the Trinity. To help us better understand the faith. And so if the only begotten son used materialism, material things, incarnating himself to teach us and to help us and instruct us, then therefore it only makes logical sense that we too can use things that are material to also depict important aspects of the faith to help the unlearned and the uneducated. So guess what? In the 8th century... Not everybody had, you know, the English primer or the phonics, you know, how to read or understand Greek. They they didn't have that kind of stuff back then. There were true classes of people. You were either in the Algarian sector of life or you were born into a wealthy family, so forth and so on. And so you had in the church a lot of people that could not read. And so their reasoning, their own wisdom was we have to be able to use these things To make sure that these individuals who can't read the word of God, like we can read, channel their worship to the proper God. I mean, we do, they admittedly said, live in a very, you know, multicultural environment. And we wouldn't want the Christians to actually begin to think that uh, this over here or that over there had something to do with Christianity. So these pictures are going to help them they can hang in their house and make sure that they're praying to Jesus right? I'm just telling you the reasoning. They were careful uh, to say, these are the iconodules that that are on the board there. These are are the class that would argue for the use of icons, the iconodules. They would have argued that it's not the the the, the painted picture itself that you're supposed to give your affection to. It's it's the object that lies behind it, right? And so their understanding of how they wanted icons to be used, images of the faith to try to help people, is they're saying, you know, this is the icon, and here's the object behind the icon. And we're careful to teach our people, hey, when you're looking at the icon to foster... Uh, affection, uh, adoration, to foster worship, to make sure you're staying focused on when you come to the Sabbath day and we're telling you who Jesus is, to make sure you're, you're focusing on. You're not, be careful, Colin, be real careful. You don't make that the thing you're worshiping. It's Jesus behind that you're worshiping, right? So I guess to their credit and their wisdom, we can kind of say, well, you know, I'm glad you make that caveat, right? Just as a side note, don't we always hear those little caveats sometimes in people's theology? They have this kind of on-the-surface problematic practice that's not really rooted in the Word of God. And then they add that little caveat that makes you want to feel like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess that's okay. As long as you don't do that. Right? Well, here's the problem. Is when you don't stick to the Scriptures, your clever ideas, your good intentions, brother, they always trickle down and get taken in directions you never intended it. And guess what? That's what began to happen. The people began to worship the icon. They began to feel that if I have an icon, Abby, in my house, that guess what? This home is protected by God. Why? Because I got that icon in there, right? His presence is here by the icon that's venerated. It's sacred because of the object it represents, you see. So there begins to be a lot of spiritual connotations applied to the icon, that perhaps the iconodoles, the iconodals that that wanted them to be used, never intended, but nonetheless, eventually began to happen. People began to believe they were spiritually blessed. Then they began to uh, adore them in such ways uh, that they're kissing them, they're bowing before them. And anyone with the Bible is immediately going, what in the world is taking place? And so, in the western half of the Roman Empire, the, the, the Christians over here who are speaking Latin and having maybe some friends and family, and I'm speculating here, grant me for the sake of illustration, coming over to visit, and they got their little icons with them to know, and then they're going to come out and they, say they're all Christians, and they're going to have a meal, and they get their little icon and they sit on the table. And, 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 you know, the Latin speaking cousins, long distance cousins are looking at that and they're thinking, what in the world are y'all teaching over there at the church? And they get out the Bible. Oh, you can't be doing that. Oh, well, you know, you can imagine Greek and Latin and a Latin person trying to speak Greek and Greek trying to speak Latin and they're arguing about it. Right. Well, it makes its way all the way up to a council to where the church has to come together with everyone and say, what do we make of this? We cannot, in the Word of God, it explicitly prohibits us from using images of God, the Trinity, in any way for worship and or instruction no matter what your good intentions are. The Bible is clear in the second commandment. This is what the church in the West was saying. What are you guys doing? We can't be doing this. So it comes down to the second council of Nicaea in the latter part of this century. Now, it's been about almost 500 years since the first council. So relatively speaking, there's been quite a bit of unity, you could say. I'm not saying perfectionism. If we really dissected these elements of what was going on in those 500 years, we would see that there were things developing, traditions developing that were outside of Scripture. But it has been 500 years since they've had to get together like this to settle something so important. And you could see the trajectory where this would lead, right? Here's the verdict that came out. The verdict of the second Nicaea Council was the iconoclastics, those were the breakers of the icons, those are the ones who were saying we can't have icons, told the iconodules, those who were the servants of the icons or the propagators of the icons, told them, in so much that you don't make the icons the adoration of worship, uh, but you consistently and constantly affirm your position of worshiping what they point to, then you can continue to have the icons. And so... The Western Church doesn't, at this point, totally condone the use of icons, but puts the caveat of how they're to be used. Now, with that approval, the Eastern Church, which is now the Eastern Orthodox Church before the big split between the church and you have the Eastern Church and the Western Church, now it's guns blazes, paintbrush out, you know, the whole nine yards. And that's why today as part of their heritage, the Greek Orthodox Church, when you go into the church, many of you, you probably would lose your breath at the idolatry that's set up all around. These images that are supposed to, with good intentions, help you focus and remember in some physical way the God of the Trinity. They plaster the walls. Now, we look at this and as protestants we say well i'm glad we don't have that problem and 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 we don't i mean you could see there's no there's nothing in this chapel today that's supposed to be as a crutch to help you sense that you know god's with you or anything like that um we'll be talking about the indwelling uh, of the spirit in today's message but it is important for us at this time to pause and say what has god given us What are some tangible material things that the Lord has given us that points to a spiritual reality? What's two and you already know what they are? Yes. Somebody pointed up here at the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper. It's a material, physical, gospel witness every single week, isn't it? This is what the Lord, Jesus Christ, He instituted. So Brother Scott, Why can we as the church of Jesus Christ not just be content with what the Lord Jesus Christ has given us in material form to point us to His real presence, His real abiding work in our lives, and get off on the sidetrack and invent other things? If we had more time, we could very easily do some research, drill a little deeper, and probably find out and discover. I say probably, I put that in brackets young ones here's a challenge to you go find this out okay bunch of homeschool kids here y'all go find this out was the connection to the greek byzantine empire desiring to use graphic clip art images in their worship somehow connected to their cultural context they were being converted out of and i bet you're going to discover it was very closely connected These pagans, as Paul's dealing with in Ephesus, are coming out of these pagan cultures into the church, but they're wanting to blend their culture with the faith. And the right thing the church should have did, the right thing the bishop should have did, is not fear a lack of relativism with these Greek-speaking visiting new Christians and their use of wanting to use artwork in the church. They should have said, Oh, dear son, look at the beautiful thing Christ has given us. He's given us a picture right here, his body and his blood. Oh, you know, and 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 keep it at bay, keep it at bay. But so many times, even in our modern day, what do we want to do? We want to somehow bring it in, but to retain some sort of orthodoxy we'll add a caveat. And then we can kind of say, yeah, see. All right, I'm gonna go there because it just come to my mind, here's a modern-day application. And this is what gets me in trouble. I've heard of some people who will say, in the quote-unquote conservative evangelical circles, oh, no, uh, we firmly hold up the truth that only men should hold offices in the church. Um, you know uh, women should not be teaching in the church so forth and so on and um, then if someone were to kind of say well you know isn't this really teaching when when a, when, a, when a woman stands up in a congregation and she prays aloud and all the men's heads are bowed and silent and she's the only one risen up to her feet and she prays she's leading the church in prayer and brother says i don't know about you but when i pray i i like to use good doctor when i pray do, do you you know yeah Uh, So there's a lot of teaching going on in in, in verbal prayer. Um, But anyhow, you get through all of that. And then there's the caveat. Well, you see, this sister in the church who we place in this place of leadership, um, she understands that she's under the authority of the church officers and so therefore she's really not an officer. She's really not for trying to usurp the authority of the officers. We are quote unquote, you'll hear it time and time again, we're delegating. We're delegating to her. So you see she's not a certain sur- and what did I just say? I just basically said an Orthodox truth with a caveat to help remove its offensiveness to you, right? Uh, the, the offensiveness of breaking, you know, that orthodox truth. Guys, <laughs> this stuff will wear you out as a Bible believer. Stick to what the scriptures say. Have uh, Galatians 6.1, you know, a gentle and uh, but a, yet a firm approach in correcting error. But stick to the word of God. Stick to the word of God. Well, may the Lord help us to seek further applications of our history lesson today in the 8th century so much to study in the 8th century I wish I had more time to go into that and unpack it there's just so many you know activities going on in there and so forth and so on but let's go to the Lord in prayer oh our sovereign God we come before you now and Lord following this examination of human history particularly in the 8th century all the movements Lord and um all the different uh, uh, climates and cultures and Lord, really the different degrees that we recognize of darkness that uh, surrounded and, and just had a grip as if it were on the entire world that you gave the church a commission to go out into. It causes us to truly pause today and be reminded of the words of the Savior, that it is his power that will help us, first in our own lives and then in our homes and the lives of our children and then the lives of our community and local uh, society, but also it's going to be His power, His truth, His might, Lord, that will raise up some men amongst us, some leaders amongst us, to go into the world even yet today. Many of these cultures are still in existence in some way, shape, or form, connected to some of the same pagan idols And Lord, your command, your great commission that you have given us has never changed. And I pray, oh God, that you would give us in this country, Lord, a great balance. Give us as your church in this country a great balance in the senses that we need some time within the house of God. Lord to shore up and, and to heal up and, and to get strong, Lord, and, and by way of just many errors that have crept in. And, and so, Lord, in and, and the balance I'm, I'm asking in this prayer is that you would give us, Lord, just a respite of protection, Father. Um, Lord, that, that, that there, there could be a, a next generation or a couple generations ahead that, that could be, Lord, just really raised up to do this, this mighty work. But at the same time, Lord, the balance that, that I'm asking of you, is that we would still see that we have this great call. Uh, One thing is, I guess you could say, not put on hold of God for another thing. Uh, We need to do both simultaneously. But Lord, right now, there there seems to be a great imbalance. We have, as the evangelical church, been so focused, God, on outside of our borders that we've really lost our way within our borders. And I pray that you would give us more clarity and perspective, Lord, uh, of the Great Commission, I pray that we would take seriously controversies that take place amongst us within the church, within our borders, but not to the detriment, O oh God, of the Bonifaces and the Aladons that are going out and still sharing the gospel. Give us, I pray, Lord, courage. Give us boldness. And, O oh Lord, give us the needed wisdom to interact and to be the salt and light you've called us to be in our own day and age. And to you be all the power and the glory forever and ever for your worthy